Hello everybody, James here, Franchise University with Shane Douglas. Shane Douglas questions you want to be emailing to, Questions at gmail.com to send uh, questions into this show for the franchise himself, Shane Douglas, to answer, which is what this show is going to be. It's fan questions, all your questions for an entire hour, and Shane, you're ready to go. I, I, I think so. First of all, how you keep, with all the stuff you do, how you keep all those different things straight, I can't remember any of the passwords and emails and all that kind of stuff. So you, you're doing a lot better than I do. First question from Chris Hamrick. Tell the world how much you love me. Just wanted to say hi. Great podcast. I appreciate it, Chris. Chris is a good dude, man. He, uh, uh, you know, we say it all the time. It, it sounds almost like cliche now, but the, uh, for all the men and women that came through ECW, and and you know, we got to share something very, very special. And uh, you know, Chris is always one of those guys that just you know, you go out, always have a good match with him. You know, he's always a hard worker and stuff. And and you know, there's some guys around that this is probably a lot of people say about me, like the pain in the ass guys, right? <laughs> and you know, Chris falls into the the former, not the latter. <laughs> Did Chris go through uh, the ECW school, or am I thinking of someone else? The, the, so the the ECW House of Hardcore Training School. I don't think so. No, I, I believe he'd come up. Uh, 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 not quite sure, uh, but it, it wasn't, I, I'm almost positive it wasn't House of Hardcore. Um, that was more like the, you're thinking Chris Chetty. I'm sorry, that is probably what I'm thinking of. Oh, I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> uh, yeah, Chris Hamrick. Uh, I'm just looking at his Wikipedia now. He uh, wrestling as a child, Northern California. Wrestled on the independent scene for several years. In 1994, he started wrestling enhancements for the WWF. So I always, I always love to hear the WWF enhancement stories. You've got one as well, but we'll save that for yeah. another time. Next question. Aiden, listening in Ireland. Hi, Shane and James. Here's a There's a bit of a word he wants, so bear with me. Here's a question where Shane might be the only person who can answer it doing a podcast. I'm wondering if Shane has any information about Lady Alexandra, the wife of Damien Kane both of whom worked in ECW circa 1996. Damien seemed to be a wrestler who broke into the business in the 1980s, but by 1995 was primarily a manager and an office guy for other promotions. Alexandra, also known as Lex, seemed to be his younger wife, who he may have introduced to the business. Heyman and Kane seemed to know each other from the 80s. While Damien never seemed to catch on in ECW, Lady Alexandra was smoking hot woman who really knew how to costume herself. Just saw a nod as well out the corner of my eye. Uh, whereas uh, every single photograph from her in the area shows how fantastic looking she was and wearing the outfits that really, really suited the vibe in ECW at the time, balancing sexuality and creativity. One rumour online suggests that Damien and Lex had a falling out with Missy Hyatt and caused them to leave ECW. They both seem to have finished up in wrestling after that. Does Shane know the truth of the matter and can he offer us any thoughts on Lex and Damien in general? No, other than they were, they were like, you know, just good to have around. Uh, she was like, there, you know, we'd, valets had been around like since the eighties, you know, like where they started really being showcased. Um, and, and different of the, the, each of those different characters, you know, baby doll was different from say Sherry Martell, who was different, say from Medusa. Uh, uh, you know, so that wasn't anything necessarily new, but she did, she, she brought, uh, there was a little bit of that uh, woman-esque uh, Elizabeth-type feeling about her. Like, like, uh, like Aiden said, a very first of all, Aiden, thank you for the question. And what's up, Ireland? I've got some good friends over there in uh, uh, Township Cary, I think it is. Is that right? Or County Cary? Mm -hmm. One of the two. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they ECW, the size of the company, 
was very amenable to people coming and going quite often. Uh, you know, opportunities were popping up in other places. Uh, we weren't able to pay the kind of money other places would. And so like, you didn't really keep a really running tab as to who was here, who was coming, who was staying, who was leaving. Uh, other than that base, you know, the, 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 the bedrock of the company, you know, the, 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 the character, you know, the main characters. Um, I, but I don't remember the reason they left. And I don't remember specifically when they left. I mean, I'm sure that that'd be easy enough to find as far as the timing goes, but, uh, you know, ECW was, uh, I, I think for a lot of people and Damien was around the business long enough at that point to, to realize, uh, you know, are, are the, are the opportunities going to be there? And, you know, once you've been there for a certain length of time, you can tell if the company's going to, you know, ever get behind you or push you or keep you mid card, upper card, lower card. Uh, and I would guess that it probably had something to do with that. But again, pure, pure guess, Aiden. Uh, there, but again, there were so many people that came into ECW. If you go back and look, a lot of times, like I'll hear somebody say, well, you know, when so and so was in ECW, they're like, yeah, I don't remember that. And then they'll, I'll see a clip of it. I'm like, well, I guess, you know, the things you forget. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, I think it pretty much covers it. They were uh, people that were fun to have in the dressing room. You know, the, but ECW. There was a lot more of that in ECW than other places. That, that you know, not suggesting that there weren't issues and stuff in our dressing room as well. But it it, it had much more of a family feel in the sense that you know you were all working together. Everybody was pushing in the same direction. Uh, there was very little subterfuge and almost no politics, at least initially in those first couple of years. I hate to say I'm looking at Wikipedia here. Uh, Lady Alexandra and Damien Kane left ECW after making inappropriate remarks toward the then recently fired Missy Hyatt. So I'm afraid uh, that mystery is just going to have to sort of uh, just carry on for a bit longer, but you never know. We'll find the answer sometime. Yeah, we'll get it. Yeah. Next one is Keith from Wisconsin. Greetings, franchise. Big fan of the show. Really appreciate... You don't appreciate my reading out of questions, I'll tell you that. Really appreciate your unique perspective and immense expertise. I remember reading in Mick Foley's book that early on you wrestled under the name Troy Orndorff. I was wondering if you could speak on this at all. For example, whose idea was this? What parts of Orndorff's personality Paul's? Or in the ring, did you try and incorporate into your work, if any? Thanks again, and keep up the great work. Uh, thanks, Keith. Uh, it's uh, yeah, I, I did wrestle as Troy Orndorff. That name was given to me by uh, old-time promoter named Crybaby Frank Cannon. Uh, Dominic had sent us up there to do some work up in Detroit. Uh, I'm sorry, in Windsor, right on the other side from Detroit, and. Uh, the promoter was asking me what my name was. And I was wrestling at that time under my real name, Troy Martin, which you can still, still see in the early WWF uh, appearances uh, two or three or four times. Uh, but uh, I didn't like using my real name because I, I don't know why, but you know, it, it, I was so pretentious that I thought if I would ever have a career beyond, I'd, I'd rather people not remember me uh, as, you know, a guy that was an enhancement talent. So uh, that's when I started changing. I think Mike Kelly uh, in WWF then. But I had gone up to the show in uh, Crybaby in Windsor with Crybaby Frank Cannon. And he goes, "What's your name, kid?" I said, "From He goes, "Ah, that's the shits." <laughs> and he, he said, uh, "Don't worry, go to the ring. I'll think of something." So I go to the ring. I was wrestling a guy named the Dingo Warrior, mm-hmm. and uh, he's uh, as I'm being announced. You know, his, Dingo Warrior's music's playing, and I hear the announcer saying, "We have the nephew." 
of the great Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. And I started looking around like, really, I don't know who's this guy. <laughs> Paul Orndorff got a nephew here somewhere? And he calls me Troy Orndorff. So how that would play out was uh, later when I would go to WWF, I used Troy Orndorff prior to going to WWF. And, you know, there were stories, you know, in, 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 the, in the business, uh, and, you know, that uh, Paul was a pretty, pretty stout dude, you know, a pretty tough guy. And I thought, you know, I'm just a skinny little kid just trying to break into the business. I'm thinking, boy, is he gonna like want to beat me up or something, you know, for uh, for using his name? And uh, that's where the name came from, from Crybaby Frank Cannon. I would later talk to Paul after we had our match in my first night up there. It was the final match, he and Bobby Heenan, and uh, came back and said, oh, "Are you okay, kid?" I'd, I'd taken the uh, pal driver and sort of pogo stick myself out of it, and they both thought that I got hurt. And uh, uh, so like, I thought, well, well, he's in that mood, right? He's like, are you okay, kid? Like, I say, hey, you know, I've been you know, using your name, a guy. I told him, cry baby Frank Kane. He goes, oh, I don't give a shit. Do whatever you have to, right? So to this day, I do have a, a legit Uncle Paul. And people come to me and say, hey, how's your Uncle Paul doing? Or, you know, would before he passed away, Paul Orndorff. And I'd start saying, like, well, how do you know my Uncle Paul? Because, you know, they're like, yeah, he's never been around the business or anything. And then it, Pops into my head like, oh, you mean Paul Warndorf? Not really my, uh, not really my uncle. But that's how it came about, and I, I used it probably about a year, year and a half. Uh, uh, just because you kept saying Frank Cannon, I know there was a George Cannon, crybaby Cannon. So there was a different guy as well, or no, maybe maybe you have a right, George. I, I, I would have sworn. Well, I can't even call Dominic anymore to check, uh, but it probably is the guy you're saying, George Cannon. Maybe I just have it wrong in my. Cobwebs up here somewhere. Yeah, I was going to say he was Canadian, Montreal. I'm going to see if it's Winston. Yeah, it might be. It might be George. Yeah, I, I think yeah. it might be George. We're going to move on. Spencer Yates. Hello, Shane. A union in pro wrestling is often talked about as something really needed and that will never happen. Since there is at least 17 unions for professional sports in the United States, the thought of pro wrestling not having a union seems just insane to me. Every sport seems to have a union for players, umpires and coaches, from football to horse jockeys to United States rugby. The only two professional sports without a union is pro wrestling and mixed martial arts. Do you think with the formation of TKO that now is the time for a wrestling slash MMA union? Thanks for the time. Love the show. I appreciate the question. Uh, you know, I... Here's the thing. Like, first, let's start with the facts. <clears throat> Having no protections is not good for the wrestlers. Uh, the independent contractorship that we've always been under. Uh, and I, again, like I always tell my own kids, don't believe so I'm telling you. I urge you to go out, go to the IRS.gov and type in the search engine independent contractor. Uh, there used to be 21 or 22 criteria. And you had to meet all 21 or 22 of them. If you were 19 out of 20 or 21 out of 22, you couldn't file as an independent contractor. Read through those carefully and then ask yourself, some of them don't even remotely apply, but the biggest ones were in charge of your schedule. So when I worked for the WWF and was under contract with say WWF or WCW, I couldn't very well say, you know what? I'd like to go home and see my buddies in ECW this Saturday. So I'm going to go take a shot up in uh, Philadelphia on Saturdays to see my boys, you know. Uh, and then the week after that, maybe, maybe I'll swing down to WCW and say hello to Ricky Steamboat. Might as well get a paycheck while I'm there and do, do a match. Uh, the, the fans out there know that's patently absurd. It would never happen. The few people that did it, like Rick Rude and uh, Brian Pillman, 
they did it because they were playing them all against each other and you know like sort of hopscotch and through uh, and, they, uh, and they were legally out of contract as well yes yes so you know and, and we're playing the edges against each other uh smart but um you know we're not even close to independent contractors so the union the idea of the union uh I, I'm reticent against my mother worked under a union. My father both worked under a union. And I remember hearing them tell a story that my mother one time, I remember, you know, she was making like two something an hour and feeding six kids off of that. They went on strike for six months one time, which was tough. And, uh, you know, weren't quite sure to be food on the table tonight and that sort of thing. And they had offered them like a 25 cent raise over three years or something like that. A number that may have wrong slightly. But uh, the finally, after six months, the union president and vice president, and, you know, the, the, the officers of the union said, uh, we're, we're going to suggest voting for the deal. It's a good deal. And they vote for it basically because they had to. They had you know, they could stay out of work much longer. And that week, the president and vice president of the union making the same money my mother made, or maybe slightly more, uh, showed up in brand new Cadillacs. So, uh, you know, that when you see that kind of stuff, that's the stuff that, you know, just uh, makes you, it nauseates you. Uh, but the no protections, you know, they're, we need something. And I, I don't know if there's smarter people out there than me that can figure out something between them, union possibly, uh, but some sort of protections built in other than just this willy-nilly fly by the seat of our pants uh, you know, how many stories you've heard of wrestlers that come and go and they, you know, they get screwed, they get cheated on their money, they get lied to, uh, things like that, which I, I don't think, I'm not taking an unintentional slam at Vince. Vince brought wrestling up into the, literally the 21st century. But many of the t basic tenets of the, the old school, you know, the independent contractor and things like that are still, those vestiges have still been held over. Uh, so I, I would suggest that, I, like, for the you know, when you start looking like James Harris, uh, you know, Kamala, uh, you know, at, at the end of that, that man's life, as hard as he had worked and was willing to work after, drove truck for years after, uh, the fact that he would, you know, not have any kind of retirement or any kind of something like that, you know, to, to, to give some minimum safety net, I think is a, uh, a travesty and a black eye on our business or on our profession. Uh, I, I I don't think that UWF, or I'm sorry, UFC uh, bodes well. They don't have the only two of them and us <laughs> that, that, that they just bought it. So I don't think that would be any earth shattering tectonic shifts in, in, in the way they approach that. But I, I'll say this and I'm obviously I'm jaded uh, because I've been a wrestler for all these years. Uh, I am amazed at the commitment that wrestlers make into this business. Uh, it's why marriages don't survive. It's why a lot of the guys have no relationship with their kids. Um, there is a huge hole to pay in the business, both physically and emotionally. And I think that in, in marrying the business like that, none of us complaining on it. Uh, we knew that coming in. But I believe that the guys deserve to be treated as well as the NFL players, the NHL players, the Major League Baseball players. Uh, in some respects, uh, our industry is much harder because there's no offseason. So there's this constant, uh, you know, push to continue to perform, which, of course, as we know, led to the opioid uh, uh, epidemic in our business and the subsequent deaths and, and all of that. 
I, I don't know if union's the answer. I, I, I've never really dug into it that deeply. Uh, but some protections for the wrestlers, I think, are are necessary. And the fact that we're in the 21st century and a lot of those protections still don't exist, I think, is a, uh, a black eye on our business. But I appreciate the question. I'm going to follow up on that. Are you aware of the MMA lawsuit from Kung Lee to U- UFC? No. This has been going on for many, many years. It revolves around union. It revolves around not being paid a fair percentage. It revolves around UFC uh, monopolistic practices, let's say. And yeah. it's finally getting some serious credence as being rushed through the courts now. I think it's finally going to go to court this year unless a settlement happens. But the thing is, if, if the if the courts, if it does go to court and then the courts find the UFC guilty of monopolistic practices not paying their fighters enough, I think it revolves around something like 18% of their revenue goes to fighter pay, whereas something like yeah. NFL pays 50% to their players. WWE right, yeah. pays more like 11 12 13% to their yeah. contracted on-screen talent. So if UFC is found guilty... WWE is going to topple next. But having said that, as you say, you need to bring in some protections for the guys working. But then how does that work for someone like WWE or AEW? But then do the rules have to also apply to independent promotions? And then uh, you'll, run well, the, you'll run the indies off, mostly, if you then have to get insurance for all the guys working, health insurance working on your card. Possibly, except like you, it couldn't be argued that an independent company that, say, books me two, three, four times a year would be on par with the company that's running me, say, three, four times a week. Um, and, and there are other things like that in this country. You know, the corporations over a certain size uh, have to do certain things. If you're under X number of employees, those same rules don't apply, but maybe slightly different rules. Um, I, you know, I, I think that there is a, a way to do this, to put the protections in for the wrestlers uh, that – uh, that gives them, nobody's saying that we need to have, you know, people rubbing our feet and rolling the red carpet out for us. But if you blow your knee out, should you just have to tape it up and keep going? Well, if you want to feed your family, yes. Uh, and, and I know that today there are some guaranteed contracts, but there are still a lot of people in the industry, or, excuse me, working far below those, those guarantees. So, uh, you know, like the NFL and, and other major, my understanding is that when they have these college kids come in and get drafted, that part of their matriculation in is our courses on, uh, you know, finances and, you know, all, all of those types of things, sort of making them a little more savvy to those, you know, to the real world out there. And, uh, I, I think, you know, like in wrestling, there are a lot of guys that face it, less so today than when I broke in. But uh, being college educated, when I broke into the business, uh, I certainly wasn't the first, but it was still a rarity then that most guys did not have that background. And so, you know, they go out and say, break their back or neck, God forbid, um, you know, end their career. And they live in this big house because of making all this money from wrestling. And all of a sudden, well, what job are they going to get to go out and be able to pay these bills? Uh, you know, so I, I think we need to have some kind of discussion on that. Uh, and yeah, nobody's saying that, you know, we have to be same percentage as the NFL. It'd be nice if we were. Uh, but the point taken that if they're paying that much 
and major league sports are paying that much out, then you can start to now you have to start looking at the at the institutional investors, right? The people that are publicly funding uh, these businesses, saying, "Well, you, you know, for all this, uh, you know, mission statements and we believes out there, uh, if you're investing in, a, in an industry that is still capitalizing on the human pull of, of wrestling, you know, what we put our bodies through, and the company is only paying out, or the industry is only paying out this much when the other places are paying out that much. There's definitely an argument to be had there. And I just believe that with as talented as the guys are and the commitment they make to the wrestling business, of course, when I say the boys or the guys, I mean everybody, um, they deserve to have the same types of things that a school teacher would have, a office worker would have, uh, just about any other industry and most other professional sports as big as the UFC and the WWE are and will be. There should be some protections, yes. Now, this next question, I'm not sure you're going to be able to answer too specifically because I know you don't really watch AEW, but Alex says, Hello, guys. Hey, Shane. I'm your biggest fan from Greece. I want to ask you your opinion on the usage of blood in AEW in the year 2023. And who, in your opinion... uh, I'll ask the second one later, but... Blood in AEW in 2023, or maybe blood in 2023, where do you stand on it? Oh, you know, it's, again, how the world has changed, right? I mean, it's, uh, uh, you know, the whole pandemic and, uh, you know, just more cognizance and awareness in, in the public's eye. Um, I've, never I, asked, I, I, I've never asked you this, Shane. Um, did you ever worry, because, you know, you've done it, so many other people have done it, ECW territories and stuff like that. When you were more aware of bloodborne diseases, AIDS, hepatitis, etc., did you were you more reticent to, to, to bleed in matches? Well, absolutely. I, I was always reticent to, only because it, just, you know, it seemed to me like such a archaic notion. Uh, you know, the, the, the fans had a pretty good idea from for most of my career, it's been a publicly stated thing by the WWE that it's a work, right? So, uh, well, if it's a work, then why do you want to take a razor blade and cut my face with it? Um, I, I was the only time I was for it was whenever the, again, like I talked about the uh, in last episode, um, or was early this episode with the fall, the false finishes uh, and and the finishing moves. Um, uh, the same thing with with blood. Only if it's going to elevate the match. Only if there's, you know, like you've had this year and a half run, say with Taz, and all these things have happened, and now we need something more just to push it over that that apex. Uh, only then, and only with guys that I would trust. Uh, today, I, you know, ever since like, you know, the, the, there was the, the one Canadian wrestler Hannibal that got contracted hepatitis which is an incredibly serious medical condition, um, can kill you. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would think today that, first of all, anybody working for your company, whether it's done intentionally or it's hard way, um, and with what we do, people get busted open quite a bit. And, you know, not not like on a nightly basis, but, but certainly enough. So I think it's incumbent, again, on those protections I just talked about in the last question, uh, that if you have, if you're going to hire Shane Douglas to work in your uh, in, in your ring and uh, you know, inside the ring, then I should be tested before uh, periodically or whatever to make sure that I'm not carrying some kind of uh, bloodborne disease. Uh, and just in general, I just think today it's it's unnecessary, right? There's places for it, uh, but 
if, with a whole bunch of asterisks. The, everybody in that dressing room has been tested multiple times, and, every, and that doesn't mean they couldn't pick something up last night or whatever, but put every protection in place and only done when the, it's cleared with the company. Uh, and let's face it, today I think there's enough other ways that we can get around doing that, that, you know, it just seems so yesteryear. Right to me that, uh, but again, there are times when it does elevate the angle, uh, and you know I know there are some guys that are dead set. If somebody gets busted open, that they get out right out of the ring, and I can understand why. Uh, it's a it's a different world, just and yet just another way, right? I mean, it's the the the, the, the page keeps turning, and then the world keeps changing. It's you know uh, I think it's just smart for us to take every precaution we can to protect uh, the talent as much as we can without wrapping them in bubble wrap. So, uh, you know, there's a place for it. Let's say they have like a WrestleMania coming up. They know James and I are going to be wrestling and we've had all this time put into this buildup and everything else. Well, neither of us should walk into that ring not knowing if the other one's, you know, not clean or, you know, may have picked something up. So uh, I I think there's ways to put protections in that uh, greatly mitigate the, the opportunity that you could pass something on to somebody else. But I just think like, like the old days, everybody was just bleeding every single match. It didn't mean anything at that point. Uh, you know, and I, I think that, you know, with the protections in place and you know, protections being that the guys are tested and everybody knows and, uh, you know, and it's the right place for it, not just, hey, let's do it because... Alex here mentioned AEW. I couldn't quite, I don't know why I couldn't think of this, but I'm suspecting he mentions, because there's obviously for AEW this last month, quite a few death matches or, you know, hardcore matches with barbed wire or glass or whatever it is involved. But there was the big one Adam Page versus Swerve Strickland. Uh, Swerve bleeds a gusher. He's on his hands and knees. And then Adam Page gets under him as the blood drips down and drinks his blood. Yeah. And that was, yeah. that was really the big thing there. So I think that's the most extreme example of blood in 2023 yeah and you know i i would give all the gold on the planet to have my mother back i don't want my mother's blood in my mouth and i'm sure she wouldn't want my blood in her mouth um it's it just you know the i mean each of us has our own things that we've done to try to get over in the ring uh i would dare say that in this day and age certainly post-pandemic but even prior that the idea of putting somebody else's blood in your mouth is just pretty uh pretty outlandish it's uh let's put it this way i wouldn't do it no uh, i don't think most people would we will move on to the next question anthony asks when you're in the wwf in late 1990 early 1991 and 1995 did you have a lot of interaction with the Undertaker. Now we know you did bits and pieces in WCW in nineteen eighty nine, I guess, but in WWF, uh, Undertaker memories. Uh, well, I had no, didn't do any work with him, like you know, on camera work. Uh, but, you know, but Mark was uh, pretty laid back in the back, uh, always easy to get along with. Uh, you know, uh, you could see by that time he was just beginning this run. You know, and and you could see vestiges of what he had, the guy he was in WCW. Uh, but you could also see that he was, you know, he'd been elevated up that card quite a bit. And 
you know, was uh, taking on that leadership role in the dressing room, like sort of leading by by uh, example. Um, I only have everything but, but anything but good memories of Mark. Uh, and I don't know if that's because we had known each other WCW prior, uh, but we didn't. There was no interaction between me, Shane Douglas, and 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 the Undertaker on camera in the ring or anything. But he, uh, uh, you could see where he intended to take that character. You know, where he was you know, taking the character very seriously. Uh, but in the back, you know, it was still Mark Callis and you know uh, cutting up with the boys and everything. And, and and to me, that's that's a good leader. You know, in a locker room, that somebody's gonna uh, not come up with their nose in the air or uh, I, I can't talk to you today, James. It's my, I'm getting my nails done. You know, we got to like that kind of thing. That was never Mark. You know, always good guy to be around. Were there any? Well, in '95, who were the locker room leaders? Because I think I've heard Taker, Yoko. Yoko, uh, uh, they, uh, in, in fact, they had started the, uh, uh, as sort of like a joke back to the click, um, the something posse, the, uh, uh, they all had hats and stuff made, and it was sort of to be the counterbalance against the click. Oh, yeah, the BSKs. Uh, BSK, yes, there we go. And, uh, you know, and, and so like, the fact that you even needed that, I think, shows you, like, how outlandish the uh, the click was becoming, you know, and and it wasn't just this guy or that guy or this wrestler and that wrestler. It was the dressing room taking note, and so you had this sort of camps pushed out. Uh, you know, are you on this side of the fence or that side of the fence? Uh, but again, I think that, that spoke that that was pretty much keeping in with what Mark Callis was uh, in WCW and before. But now, you know, he's he's in the position of being a locker room leader. Next question. David, hi, Shane and James. Hope you both well. I've just reread Bob Holly's book. I definitely recommend it if you haven't read it already. He put Shane over saying he thought he could have been one of the top guys because he was damn good. Bob then refers to the... I was It's the click. We pronounce it clique here, but I, I try and do the American version. Yeah. Click. Basically squashing any chance you ever had with the company. Bob does not even mention wrestling Shane in his book. Did they ever have a match? And does Shane have any Bob Holly related stories? Thank you for your time. Yeah, he he was one of the first guys that I remember, you know, like looking at uh, Bob Holly, the athlete, you know, the the person, and then watching the gimmick that was put on him that seemed like so, uh, you know, like I don't know, a, bit, a little bit cornbally or something, because he seemed like a you know, tough guy, you know, good, good in the ring, and uh, and I remember thinking to myself, like, that's a shame because he has. You know, he he seems so much more legitimate than 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 just that, and uh, you know, in some ways you could argue that you know, that was again my naivete and looking at what Vince was doing with sports entertainment. Uh, you know, Bob, uh, we we had a match. I want to say it was in Warren, Ohio, I believe. Uh, and you know, anytime you're in the ring, for the, I think it was the first time we worked. And, you know, there's a feeling out process, you know, when you see the wrestlers, uh, you know, circling and you know, doing, you know, reaching in and you know, just, it looks a little bit like a dance at first, but really what each of us is doing is just, uh, I'm watching foot placement and where the movement is. I'm sure he's doing the same thing. Uh, and we went at it pretty good. You know, like there's, a, it wasn't like you're trying to best them, but you're, you know, by like pushing, you know, you see him pushing back 
And that's when those matches just sort of get into that groove and go on their own. At the end of that match, um, you know, I had fed up for a clothesline and he was coming off of this clothesline. And uh, just as I turned into it, he hit me in the throat. I hadn't gotten my body up high enough. And, you know, the guy was still coming up. And it actually had fractured my larynx, which is why my voice had gone uh, sort of Johnny Aces for a while, you know. It was, uh, uh, you know, uh, and boy, I tell you, if anybody out there's ever damaged their their trachea, it's it's an incredibly painful thing for the first couple of days. Uh, Bob, to me, was like the guy that you'd walk into that dressing room and you'd see the, this, you know, a plethora of really tough guys, athletic guys guys that all had the same dream in this industry. And like, to me, I, I thought with Bob, like the same thing like he said about me, you know, the old uh, uh, Steve Austin thing. I wish Vince would have strapped a rocket to his ass, right. And see how far he could go. And I, unfortunately the WWF has, has always been, uh, and certainly was still then a place where there were a half dozen guys figured in, that were you know sort of like the the the, the nucleus of the of the, the the company's push, and everybody else was just sort of thrown in here and there and haphazardly. Uh, and I I thought Bob had the ability uh, you know to go in there and be so much more. And this is you know we're still at this point where the wrestling is going you know splitting off of wrestling going to sports entertainment someplace. And some of those guys, you know, had a lot, were a lot more visionary than I was as far as wanting to go or being willing to go that direction. I I always wanted to stay to the wrestling side of it, and uh, you know, but like Bob, much like George South had done earlier in NWA, showed that like you know, stay there and you know, stay the course. You may never get to the level you want to get to, uh, but you're going to have a career for a, for a good long while, you know, the, you know, being on a tough enough series and all, all of that. Um, you know, it was, uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you for, the, for those kind words out there. And, uh, you know, it's, and, and the question, because you know, Bob's one of those guys that I haven't seen in quite a while, you know, normally run into these, uh, you know, in each other, you know, no matter, like for instance, last Russell case said Conan for the first time in, I don't know, six, seven, eight years. Uh, but I haven't seen Bob for quite a while. Does he do many of these conventions? And best I know, I've not seen anything public from him in years. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know if he's just completely divorced from the business or wherever he is. I don't know. Yeah, interesting. I have to dig into that and find out. Next question, Josh asks. There's another WWF question, really. Uh, what are your thoughts on Bruce Pritchard? How does his views on the wrestling business differ from your views on the wrestling business? And do you get along with him? Was he supportive of you in the WWF? Uh, initially, yes. Uh, when I was there, and, uh, I, I get, I have very stark memories of both 1991 and then the 95. Uh, Bruce, I interviewed Tom uh, Pritchard, uh, you know, who I consider a dear friend, uh, about six months ago, maybe a little bit longer, and was asking him, you know, because, you know, Bruce is so ebullient and outgoing and talkative, and, you know, Tom's you know, just you know, no, he'll talk with us and stuff, but it's like you know, you're gonna work a lot harder to have a conversation with Tommy. Um, 
And and I asked him, like, you know, because him being in the ring and, you know, he said that his brother always wanted to go that direction. He never really felt comfortable in the ring wrestling. And whereas Tommy, you know, much more wanted to be in the ring and eschewed the idea of being in the office. Uh, you know, the, the, I always talk about the WWF and E in, in these terms. To go there and survive there and then thrive there, uh, it, you have to change somewhat because it's just such a, you know, the, I think in this recent loss, you can see there's a whole lot, there's a whole culture there that, you know, you're not going to get up to that second or third or fourth level if you're not morphing into that culture, uh, which means being accepting of it, I guess, or turning an eye to it or whatever. Uh, but when he, the first I remember meeting uh, to, to get to know Bruce was right before he got married. And the reason that, that sticks out in my head was because the, the woman that he married was an assistant to one of the photographers. Very, very good looking lady. I Bless her. I, I apologize. I can't remember her name. And uh, he, uh, you know, we would talk quite often on, because at this time, the, the Shane Douglas in 1990-91, there was no real direction as to what we were going to do with that character other than they gave me an opportunity. It wasn't like they said, okay, we're going to bring you in and make you this or that or a franchise or a dean. Uh, it was just, we're going to give you a chance. And uh, while I was there, uh, Vince had come up with the idea, and Bruce is the one that brought this to me, that because I had you know dabbled with songwriting and, and uh, played bass and uh, lyrics and all of that. And Jimmy Hart had written these songs and Vince wanted to see if he could produce a legit rock star. And uh, Bruce was, as I recall, someone that brought that to me and all excited. You know, this is what Vince wants to do. This is the vision he has. Uh, Jimmy Hart's writing songs now. Uh, you know, uh, so there was that side of that. Now, just, I haven't known Bruce personally since then, I mean, I, you know, obviously say hello to him and see him whenever I see him, but I would say me and Tom are, are a lot closer as far as, you know, see him today, we pick up, we'd have a two-hour conversation. Um, and and I, this is not a criticism, I, because again, like some like vanilla, some like chocolate. When you see the stuff that the WWF has done, as fans know, I'm not a big fan of that sports entertainment style. Uh, obviously, a lot of other fans do love it. Uh, you know, so I, I would say that, uh, Bruce and I, uh, were friendly, you know, but I never had any reason to have any, you know, goings on with him for some time. But when we see each other, there's always a little, you know, a little conversation, a lot of that kind of thing. Uh, so, um, you know, but I'll wrap up with this, you know, to, to go there and especially in the belly of that beast, and be able to stay there that long and succeed at it. And, you know, the waves up and down, he's, you know, he's, he's booking now and then he's not, and then he's doing something else and he's not, he's on camera and he's not, you know, to be able to do that and sit through there takes an awful lot of, uh, uh, of spine, you know, just to tolerate that, you know, and imagine, you know, with, again, before we've been hearing about this recent lawsuit, imagine being privy to that and, uh, I would guess that my knowledge of Bruce, uh, you know, father now and, uh, you know, husband and everything, is that I found him to be far more traditional in that sense than, say, 
other people were in some of the allegations based in this lawsuit. So uh, he somehow has figured out the way to be there in the belly of that beast and keep his head above that waterline and somehow not getting it chopped off. Uh, so he's he's figured out something a lot, a lot of us haven't been able to figure out up there, <laughs> or some of us don't want to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> you uh, at the beginning of that when you started the question, you said he was supportive at first. Is this just the first run, and you didn't really speak to him the second run, or what were your relationships with Bruce during the Dean Douglas era? Very little. Uh, there was very, you know. Remember, I was only on. I think there collectively for like six months in the Dean run. And I think the first two, two and a half months was just flying up on Sundays, which of course he would not be at the uh, studio. He was off. Um, and then I would see him at, you know, I wasn't even always at every TV taping. I was at like sporadic. We need you here. We need you there. So I don't recall <coughs> having a ton of interaction with, with Bruce in 95 uh, other than like I said, a few TVs here and there. And again, even in those, it would just be the same type of relationship. Hey, Bruce, how you doing? What's up, Shane? Uh, just like the passing things. I had very little reason to ever interact with him and go say, hey, I have a problem with this or that. That's the I'd go straight to Vince with. Uh, oh, let me think who else was there at that time. Uh, but yeah, it was not, not a whole lot. Uh, and I didn't mean to imply like less later. Uh, I just think less interaction later. There was less time, you know, for our characters to, to cross angles. Next question, Randall Albertini, Ottawa, Canada. In your opinion, are wrestlers of years past, i.e. Tough Tony Bourne, Dutch Savage, Harley Race, more real-life tough guys than today's wrestlers? Yes, and, and I'll tell you why. Uh, having two kids, 18 and 22, uh, soon to be 23, uh, they, I don't think either of them ever been a real fight in their life, and most kids today haven't. And that's a good thing. Uh, you know, the guys that, that that were in the business ahead of me when I came into that dressing room, these were legit tough guys. I mean, all of them, they were they were all tough as nails. You have to be tough just to survive the road like that, you know, back then. But, you know, also back then, you know, was the, uh, the unwritten rule that if you were going to go to the bar tonight, uh, that's fine. But if you go to the bar tonight and get in a fight and get your ass whooped, you're fired. Uh, you know, so these guys were all, uh, I'm not going to say all on equal toughness. You know, some were tougher than the others, but all of those guys were, were salty dudes. You know, they, uh, a great many of them had a pretty extensive amateur background. Uh, the ones that didn't were usually pretty darn good street fighters or bar fighters. And, uh, I think today, the, the, not just in the business, I think in general, you know, we've seen this whole, uh, Politically speaking, you know, you know, the heroes talk about the patriarchy and everything else. It's almost like a a negative to be masculine, and so uh, you know, I I think that you know, without question, I'm not suggesting there's not some tough guys in the dressing room now. Uh, but if if you want to take a dressing room from say 1975 or 85, and then today or you know five years ago uh, i know it's not a, if, we're, if it was gonna be in a, in a rumble i'd be with the guys from 75 or 85 because they were all like again all tough old salty dudes you know they they knew their way around a fight they knew their way around the ring and a great many of them had an extensive amateur background uh, as well so they were salty tough old salts now there's 
very briefly, I know there's going to be the usual names like, you know, like Haku and Barbarian, Harley Race, which is mentioned here, but were there just some other dudes that you wouldn't think were tough, but just by virtue of being in the business, you wouldn't want to mess with them? Uh, just a, one name that pops into my mind right away is, and I want to give a shout out to, is Black Bart. Uh, you know, Rich was a, you know, big guy, but, you know, if you sat around with Bart, you know, he's just sort of like a, you know, just a big old teddy bear type guy. You know, but they, you'd occasionally see those guys that you you start to get an image of a certain, uh, like say Bart, you know, he's a big old teddy bear guy, great in the ring, you know that kind of thing. Uh, and then, like for whatever reason, someplace you'd see their temper blow, and you could see a different side of them. You know, Dick Slater. You know, the, the stories about him are renowned. Uh, you know, flushing things head down the toilet, and you know, getting into fights, and walking into bars, and uh, you know, challenging people. Uh, he was extremely quiet. You know, he wasn't like one of the nothing like that, James. You know, you hear a word or two from him here or there. And most of those guys were like that. You know, Pez Wally, uh tougher than nails, who one of the guys that had extensive amateur background. Uh you know, they, they these I these guys I Bob Armstrong, another one, salty, salty old guy, uh, good guy. Um, but you know, they, they knew that, you know, like in the business then you didn't start to really ascend into those upper spots, those main events, semi-main event spots till like 40, 42, 43. It was all time put in up to that and, you know, running the roads, uh, you know, being in the bars every night and all of this stuff that goes on, uh, Steve Williams, another very tough guy, um, Bam Bam Gordy. Uh, Stan Hansen. I mean, these guys all were, were big, big human beings. And, you know, and I think what also lends to it is stop and think about what we do for a living. And back then, 350 plus days a year, you know, you're getting your body thrown on. You hear the phrase bump shape. You know, the, you know I, I've been off for a few weeks. I think a bump now is going to ache like hell because of it. But when you do it every single day, your body just gets into the conditioning of doing that. Um, you know, these guys, you know, and not so much back in the day, but later years, you know, getting hit with chairs. And I remember telling the guy one time that wanted to fight, I said, I, I get hit with steel chairs every night. If you think you can hit me harder, go ahead and swing. Uh, you know, these guys, you know, with what we put our bodies through, and, you, know, it's, you know, you hear all these like little euphemisms and, and, and analogies. It's like, you know, a suplex is like being in an auto accident at 25 miles an hour. A superplex is 35 miles an hour and this and that. And then stop and think of how many of those on any given night these guys are taking. So if you think you can hit harder than what these guys are taking on a nightly basis, this is foreplay to them. You know, they, you know, it's, I remember Steve Williams uh, getting sucker punched by a linebacker from Ohio State who took a 10-step run and caught them and almost knocked him down, but he didn't. And back he got his bearings about him like a bull snorting, and he, there was two of them, and he beat the snot out of both of these kids. You know, so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you'd be, you'd be far better part of getting a swimming pool and swimming with a shark than to try to fight some of those guys. Next question. Sorry, as I <clears throat> trying to <coughs> cough my head off there. Chris, you caught, it the, you caught it from me through the computer, didn't you? No. Do you know what? I just had, I just had a ibuprofen. 
Uh, I'd have just, and I, I always say this as a joke. Like I can't swallow pills. I've got like some mental block where I can't. So I always chew them, and that's why I always say I can never been in the wrestling business. <laughs> it would have never worked with me. Uh, we're going to move on. Uh, Chris in Boston asked James and Shane. I've been watching ninety eight ECW, and since the minute uh, Tanaka, so I'm presuming Pat Tanaka, popped up, dude was awesome. He fought the triple threat in September. What was it like? The crowd loved him, and he never talked. Loved the show. Masato Tanaka. Oh, I'm um, sorry. I thought it was Pat Tanaka. Do apologize. <laughs> Yeah, boy. You, again, you were just talking about tough, right? Uh, you go back and watch those chair shots that he was taking from uh, Mike Awesome, who was a big guy. Um, I just told the story the other day. So small, small. What was it? Was it Chris from Boston? Chris from Boston, I believe. Yeah. Chris I'll double check. Chris in Boston. Yeah. I was just talking about this the other day, so it's sort of a uh, you know uh, odd small role that it came up. Um, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. ECW, uh, the David O. Lawrence Convention Center. We had four or five shows downtown there in Pittsburgh. Running shows in general Pittsburgh proper sucked because it's a 10% amusement tax right off the top, off the gross. Uh, but we hadn't yet gotten into the dome and we're at the David O. Lawrence Convention Center. I am booked in the main event with Masato Tanaka. Pittsburgh allowed Paul the inverse universe of booking. You book matches that wouldn't work elsewhere. And uh, my trainer, Dominic Benucci, was there. Uh, the only time I remember coming to an ECW show. And he was sitting out there watching the whole show. And, you know, Dominic was very reserved, you know, wouldn't so, you know, stay a whole lot. But I could see his wheels turn watching. And his talk has gone to the ring. And Dominic comes over and grabs my arm. And he said, uh, I don't mind telling you, you have a lot of pressure. You have to save this show. Uh, you know, from his point of view, from his his vernacular, his philosophy on the business was just, you know, it hadn't been much wrestling and everything, anything. And I had never wrestled Tanaka before. So most of the guys said about Bob Holly earlier, uh, you know, we're in the ring and we're filling each other out and we're pushing each other. And it's almost in my head, like I know my trainer's watching and we, we've got to you know keep this going. So I was pushing pretty hard and he was pushing back pretty hard. We had an incredible 20 minute series of chaining, uh, which first of all proved to be just how good Tanaka was. He knew his way around the ring. And uh, we came back from the ring, and Dominic had already grabbed Tanaka and came back before me. And I come back and he grabs me by the arm. And I'm thinking, oh, and we screwed up. We didn't do it right. And, uh, you know, Tanaka didn't speak a whole lot of English. So, uh, you know, I, like he would. There's, there's, you know, like shake his head and stuff. He was not really hearing or understanding. Uh, and Dominic said, uh, you two saved the show. And it was the first time Dominic ever gave me like that. It wasn't like Dominic was mean or off-putting. He just didn't throw a lot of compliments. He wanted you to keep working harder and harder. And uh, and I later had translated like, you know, as best I could to, 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 to Tanaka and Tanaka went back to Dominic and, you know, shaking his hand and bowing to him. You know, he respected Dominic. And, uh, yeah, Masato Tanaka was tough. I just saw him a couple of years, well, a couple of years ago, four or five years ago in Australia. Uh, phenomenal shape. He got himself, not that he was in bad shape before, but before he was just thicker. Now lean, cut, uh, and still working uh, pretty much full-time. Uh, just one of those guys that A, you love to work with because he was so good uh, and could go. 
you enjoyed being around him because he was, you know, just like a good guy. Um, and, you know, I thought he brought a special element to ECW, something that ECW hadn't seen prior. You know, we'd seen the luchadors before. We'd had the, the hardcore and we had the chainers and we had the flyers. Uh, but uh, Tanaka had brought something, uh, you know, that the whole mystique and uh, crispness of Japanese wrestling. And I, I thought it really helped elevate ECW. He was a definite asset for us. So I appreciate the question. And there's me thinking, no way did Pat Tanaka have a nice little run in ECW in 98 <laughs> as well. Oh, dear, my mind's just gone. Right, we've got a few more, then we're going to shut this down. Doug Myers, Rockford, Illinois. Hi, Shane. My question is about gym. I was always a gym rat. It was so fun in my 20s and 30s to pile on the weight and hit the gym. Not as much fun in my 40s, and now I'm 50, and it's just not the same anymore. Not only can I not lift heavy weights anymore, but it's not fun anymore. Have you experienced this yourself, if you still lift? What is your routine like nowadays? Yeah, greatly toned down. I've been having an issue with a nerve in my back. Uh, that whenever I get to the gym, uh, within 10 or 15 minutes, this thing starts to flare up. So I've been working my way through trying to figure out the things th that I can do that don't exacerbate it. Uh, the problem is sort of like a catch 22 a vicious cycle that I am uh, not able to push as hard as I want to. Uh, first of all, my joints couldn't possibly lift like I used to. Uh, you know, I've had so many surgeries and so many torn up joints but I don't want to. Uh, you know, there was a time in my life through most of my career where I was the, the little guy in the dressing room, right? the land of giants. Uh, so I knew if, if I was going to be main event timber that I had to look main event timber. And, and uh, you know, that, that's what really pushed me into the gym, especially once ECW came and put me in the top heel spot to, to, to really look the part. Uh, unfortunately, what we do, he said he's been a gym rat all his life. Uh, you know, all being a gym rat is, you know, we've made our muscles stronger and tore our joints up in the process of doing that. Uh, so, uh, I've been doing slowly infiltrating some of the DDP's, uh, yoga in, uh, again, it's problematic with that nerve in my back. Uh, you know, if anybody has any suggestions out there, it's, uh, it's not sciatica. It's right in my upper gluteal, and it doesn't radiate. Uh, it's like a, just a cramp that will get consistently sharper and sharper until you sit down. Uh, so it, it's definitely limited. Uh, but I think you know now, like it's, instead of weights, a lot more machine work. Uh, I also have uh, therabands at home. I have a million of them laying around my house. Uh, we'll, we'll do those. Uh, for now, for me, like the biggest thing I'm, I've been working on lately is the flexibility. You know, flexibility as, as I'm finding as I get older has uh, has been something you lose a lot faster than all the other stuff. So, uh, you know, as you know, anything about like you know, you've had grandparents or whatever, uh, once your muscles start to weaken and, and you're not keeping them strengthened up, working on the balance. And, and that's when senior citizens start having falls and things and, and uh you know, and that exacerbates it caused another injury or whatever. So uh, I'm, I'm getting back more to the basics. I don't work out nearly as much as I used to or probably 90% less impactful than I used to. Uh, but to me, it's just, you know, keeping the, the, the joints moving. And uh, I also think it's a big part of the frame of mind. 
you know, when you start to think, well, you know, I'm, I'm at X number of years now and I, I should be slowing down or whatever. Hell with that. There's plenty of time for that when you're 100, 120, 130. Uh, you know, keep fighting it. And, uh, you know, I don't like that. When I look in the mirror every day, I see this, this chubbiest guy with a lot more wrinkles than I expect I should have. I don't know who that guy is. But uh, in my head, I still feel like a 15-year-old. I'm an idiot. I, I, I'm a goofball. I want to play practical jokes and, you know, knock on people's, you know, car door, whatever they're pulling out and stuff. Just an idiot. Idiot. Uh, but I think keeping mentally young and to do that, I I, I do a lot of like word puzzles, crosswords, uh, uh, trivia stuff. You just keep, just keep the brain active to some degree. Uh, but if anybody else has suggestions out there uh, for, you know, people with like the old farts like us with the torn up joints and stuff, uh, I would definitely be interested to hear it uh, because, you know, it's, I, I know a certain way to work out and I'm not able to work out to that level anymore. So I need to try to, you know, it's just, again, picking and choosing and, and figuring stuff out. Uh, but yeah, somebody once said that, you know, a grown old ain't for the faint of heart. Yeah, that's for damn sure. But it's, uh, it's a lot better than the alternative, which would be dying young. And we've had plenty of friends do that, but appreciate the question. And if you have any, any more input or anything different than what I've said, please write back in so James can forward on to me. Okay, then. Now, <clears throat> I'm trying to think if we've got time for two or three. We'll see how... Oh, damn, there's four questions here. We'll see how we get on. Comic Collector actually has two very good questions here. <laughs> Number one, uh, you've said before, how much money did Paulie stiff you on? One hundred and forty-four thousand four hundred and sixteen or eighteen dollars, mm. and the big chunk of that, so you know, well over half, was money—not the money that I was owed. It was money that I had spent out of pocket to run shows in Pittsburgh and Cleveland. Now, you know, my stupid move, uh, but the—you know—the. If we had spent $5,000 for TV commercials and you didn't have the commercial in to them into the traffic department 24 hours before, uh, you paid five grand for nothing. So we'd already paid the five grand for that. And it was either let that money just, just flush down the drain or, you know, my brother-in-law's brother owns a, a video production company, uh, does commercials and things like that. So uh, I would go there and and do it and then send the bill to Paul, or I would pay the bill and then send it to Paul. So a lot of that money was money, you know, for newspaper articles uh, or advertisements, uh, radio, television, uh, and a whole slew of other things that we would do to promote, uh, and never got reimbursed for those. And, and I've maintained it's like, I wasn't the only one. Pretty much everybody got taken on money there, and that was the one thing that none of us deserved. You know, as hard as we'd worked for ECW. Paul and ECW, uh, when the ship started to take on water, uh, to me, he had a professional responsibility to let us know so we could protect our families. And uh, and he didn't do that. You know, so again, it's like one of those things, the black eye that I think will always be his. And uh, it's a shame epitaph to, to what was an amazing, almost mythical time in wrestling that we pulled off something that is so unlikely to succeed and audacious in, 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 in its approach and yet did. And, you know, but for the fans out there that still chant ECW, I hope all of you realize how much that means to us. 
because that means that we definitely did get into the zeitgeist, right? We did, we we had changed it just for that period of time enough to be remembered. And uh, you know, it's uh, nobody deserved that as hard as everybody worked. Nobody was lazy at ECW. Now, I'm interested in this as far as, is there no legal recourse for you or wasn't at the time because Paul had declared bankruptcy or ECW had declared bankruptcy? So you just yeah. it's just tough. That's it. Yeah, I, I had had Paul sign a promissory note uh, that he owed me that money, um, not the company, signed by him. That this was not ECW, it was Paul Hammond personally owed me this money. And I could have pursued it afterwards, even after the bankruptcy. The bankruptcy would have given him some cover and most likely would have gotten a, a, a sympathetic jury. Well, this has already been handled over there. And uh, so there's a question to me of do I spend a couple hundred thousand dollars, you know, after already losing $144,000 and it just to me seemed a lot better and safer for my family to just say, well, you know, screw it and move on. Mm. Did you have no legal recourse against WWE who ended up buying ECW? Uh, presumably they didn't buy ECW's debts because ECW declared bankruptcy, but could you not go through WWE to be compensated in that sense? Well, that's an interesting question uh, because it's the analogy would be if I buy your car, you give me the keys, you give me the title, and I've given you 10% of the money, and I take the car tomorrow and sell it, for more, um, and then I keep the money. Well, was that, is that legal? I, yeah, if you got, if I got the title, I could legally sell it to somebody, but I've not made you whole yet. So, uh, with my understanding from my attorneys, was that uh, you know, Vince can't take the footage, or I keep saying Vince, WWE can't take the footage and say, well, the footage we owe, we, we used were the weeks that you were paid. Uh, whether you could even discern that or not would be questionable, but <laughs> until it's all the money is paid up, you're still in, in arrears. Uh, and, and you know, because we were all owed so much money from there, um, it's questionable to me and to my attorneys, does the bankruptcy court have the right to sell that footage in bankruptcy when you were never fully, it'd be like, again, if I bought your car and, we declare bankruptcy. Whoops! Now that car is part of the bankruptcy. You've been screwed. Never made. It wasn't my car, really, for them to take. So uh, same thing with the footage. Um, you know, and, and I think now it's certainly a statute of limitations on it. Uh, but the fact that, and I'd be curious to talk to my friends from ECW. Uh, I have never received one red cent for anything from ECW from the time of the bankruptcy, and I'm sure they've made some kind of money with it. So I don't know how in a bankruptcy court your rights get usurped. You know, it's a, again like you know your car. You know, you're, well, sorry, you know, bankruptcy court has it now. So, uh, and I think for me, it, it's been more getting to that like that older wisdom of you know the yin and the yang. So, uh, if not for ECW. Uh, and it certainly wasn't savory what happened at the end, but if not for ECW, my biggest claim to fame would have been being Ricky Steamboat's partner. I would have been fine with that. But the fact that we have this podcast that anybody cares to listen, 
I think it's based in large part off that character from ECW. So, you know, you, you, the, the good and the bad, there's always two sides of the coin. And I think as you get older, you get a little bit better or uh, a little bit wiser on how to uh, pick and choose your fights. We'll either end on this or one more, depending on how much time. Comic Collector also asked, rumours in 1990-1991 of WWF creating a television championship and Shane becoming the first title holder. True or BS? BS as far as I know. I never heard that. Really? Yeah, I never heard that. Uh, the In that 1991 run, there was the talk of the, uh, of the rock star character, uh, the way it was told to me it was John Bon Jovi-ish mm-hmm. uh, was what you know they were looking for. There was also Kurt Hennig had come to me, and I've never been able to verify this, but he had told me that he he was needing to slow down a little bit, and he'd gone to Vince, and Vince talked about putting me and him together and calling us the perfect pair. Uh, so again, that just came from Kurt. And uh, last time I tried to call him, I couldn't get through. So <laughs> to, to verify it, but yeah, I would I would love that. You know, that. I was a huge mark for Kurt's work, um, and I think I could learn quite a bit from him. Okay, well we can't really end on that then. That's a shame because that's not the first time I've heard that. But uh, we will possibly probably end on this one. Max Zorin says, how much of a secret was the fact that Scott Hall shot and killed a man? Did the other wrestlers know about it back in the 90s? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know all the wrestlers. I know it was pretty well bandied about. Uh, and there, were, there was a lot of stuff like that. And I, I, it, again, this is so long ago, but I, as I recollect, that was pretty widely known. Uh but it had taken on proportions of, well, it can't be true because, you know, it wouldn't be arrested or whatever. Um, you know, they, they, in wrestling, again, we talked in last week's episode, you, know, they, they, you live in this this closed monolithic bubble that the outsiders can't really see in and can't get out or get in. Uh, and so that, for us on the inside, that takes on a life of, well, is that legit or isn't it legit? You know, did that really happen or not? Uh, you know, and, and as time goes on, you, st- you start hearing the different pieces of it verified or whatever. Uh, there was an awful lot of that kind of stuff going on back then. There was something about, uh, didn't he hit a woman with a car or something? Man, uh, was that in later WCW times? Or we, because he, he had a ton of racks in uh, yeah. the late 90s, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just like those kind of, there was so much of that's constantly coming in. And and remember, at the same time, we're, we're, we're talking contemporarily that we're getting these calls every other month. So you're about so-and-so, you're about so-and-so, and the phone's ringing up. So there's, there was this whirlwind of like almost tabloid-esque information floating around that, uh, uh, you know, it gave you the opportunity or at least lent your brain to thinking, I've got to be bullshit. It can't be real. Uh, but yeah, an, an awful lot of stuff like that that, were, that was going on. And again, I think it emanated from, you know, being in that bubble, like I said, that different world that, you know, gravity fell up in and we didn't, we weren't responsible to, to our actions, I guess. What were the rumours at the time? Because I think later on, it's classed as self-defence. He doesn't serve any time. But was that what you heard when you first heard the story? 
Yes. Yeah. It was, uh, there was self-defense and, uh, you know, that was the reason that he, uh, wasn't charged. But again, at the time I remember hearing that and thinking, okay, that seems like a nice little bow put on top, right? Like it's, uh, so that you honestly started thinking like second guessing even stuff that you'd heard been verified, you know, come on, you shoot somebody. And then, you know, even, you know, uh, even if it was self-defense, you would think, that there at least be, you know, he newspaper headlines or, you know, like a lot of buzz out there because, you know, the wrestling was getting so big by that time. Uh, and it's, it's in the back of my head there someplace. I want to say he was at a hotel and either pulled in or was driving out and ran a woman over. Something There's there something about, about a woman in the car at a hotel. Uh, yeah. I can't, I can't find it. All it's bringing up is Scott Hall Road. So apparently that's a place somewhere else in Leeds. So my yeah. uh, my Googling hasn't really worked out there. For now, thank you very much, everybody, for watching. Uh, Shane Douglas questions, I'm reliably told now, at gmail.com if you want to submit your questions for a future episode. Now, normally we do this once a month because we're messing around with the formula a bit at the moment and because we had almost that breaking news Vince McMahon resignation episode uh, last week. Uh, we're sort of monkeying with the formula, uh, formula a little bit, so there'll be another fan question episode in, I think, two weeks' time from now. But for now, once again, ShaneDouglasQuestions at gmail.com. Submit them there. And Shane, why don't you take us out, and uh, we'll see you again next week. Great question. We'd appreciate them all. Make sure the next time you listen to Franchise University, get a couple friends to come along with you. Until then... Sitting under the learning tree. <laughs>